0: This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio, 103.5 FM.
1: Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the new novel, The Knicks. First with the author, Nathan Hill, and then with my guests, two of my very favorite readers, Annie Toms and Jessica Sager. And stay tuned at the end of the show for our regular feature, a middle-grade recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. It's Samuel Anderson Anderson's mother who tells him the Norwegian folktale of the Knicks, a water spirit who lures children to their death. When he's 11, she leaves him. For 23 years, there is silence. Then Samuel, now a college professor and failed novelist, who too often retreats into online role-playing games, gets a call from a lawyer. His mother has been arrested for assaulting a Republican presidential hopeful, and she wants him to write a letter to the judge attesting to her character. The Knicks moves back and forth in time and place, from 1968 to 1988 to 2011, from Chicago to New York to Norway. It shuttles from the Democratic National Convention to the Occupy Wall Street movement, to the world of gamers, to the war in Iraq. I had the chance to speak with author Nathan Hill last week, and I want to share that interview with you now. Nathan Hill grew up in the Midwest and graduated from the University of Iowa with a B.A. in Journalism and English. He holds an M.F.A. in Creative Writing from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, just up the road from us folks in New Haven. He's been a journalist and an English professor and now lives in Florida. The Knicks, his first novel, has been called The Love Child of Thomas Pynchon and David Foster Wallace, and Hill himself has been likened to John Irving and Charles Dickens. Nathan, I've been excited about talking to you since I first read an advanced copy of The Knicks back in June, and then we were originally scheduled to talk on Wednesday and had to postpone. So thank you so much for getting up early to talk to me today.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay, so let's start with this. You write this character of the Republican Governor Packer. (laughs) Next thing you know, we
2: have Donald Trump.
1: You write this scene where your character Samuel has a little traffic incident in Chicago. Next thing you know, you have a little traffic incident in chicago so what i want to know is this are you planning to next use your powers for good or for evil
2: uh, <laughs> um uh, yeah the little traffic incident is the, is the reason we had to reschedule i had a little fender bender my first day in chicago the funny thing about the fender bender is that um you know i, I i've been living in chicago in the summers for something like 10 years and uh, and i uh um, you know, I was driving to my, my hotel, and I decided to take. If anybody knows, if anybody knows Chicago, I decided to take Lower Wacker Drive, which is this subterranean uh, road that is hard to find, hard to navigate, hard to get to. Um, it's like where they filmed Batman. You know, it, it has that feeling. right? It sounds, like and, uh, that? It sounds like a bad choice. What's that
1: sounds like a bad choice
2: uh well, it's, it's faster. It's the fastest route from anywhere to anywhere downtown and but it's i you know it's a very veteran Chicago driver move, and I was feeling so proud of myself <laughs> for knowing how to do it and I think I was exactly having uh that uh that that thought to myself like I'm really good at this when somebody pulled it right in front of me and I had a little accident so <laughs> so um, it made me think of the book, but uh, sort of in a different way. You know, the, the, the book uh, talks about how, uh, you know, the things that you like the most can sometimes hurt you the worst. And so here I was in a moment of khutpa, uh thinking, I'm really good at this. And that was the moment the universe decided to step in.
1: It does always happen like
2: that. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I, was, I was kind of joking. Where I had really originally planned to start was with a, um, with a passage on page 149, and it takes place when Samuel's a child uh, the morning his mother leaves him, though she doesn't know that that's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And she asks him what he wants to be when he grows up, and he says he wants to be a novelist. Um, and so uh, the passage goes like this. Yes, a novelist. He had decided sometime in the night, as he relived his great success... How his classmates roared with pleasure when the princess was saved. Their gratitude, their love. Watching them navigate his story, surprised in the places he meant to surprise them, fooled in the places he meant to fool them. He felt like a god who knew all the answers to the big questions peering down at the mortals who did not. This was a feeling that could sustain him, that could fill him up. Being a novelist, he decided, would make people like him. (laughs) So how much of that is you talking and how much of that was behind your own desire to be a novelist?
2: Uh, I think uh, a lot of that is me talking, but a very, um, a, a very much younger me. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the the me that uh, that maybe emerged from uh, from college or graduate school, uh, determined to be a writer, but but writing for all the wrong reasons. Um, uh, I, I think when I when I when I got out of grad school, I was uh, I, uh, I I was I felt uh, very careerist. In, in, in my in my writing. I was writing you know stories to try to get published in certain tiers of literary journals so that agents and editors would start paying attention and I could get things on my C V to get the teaching jobs that I wanted. Like I was sort of thinking of my writing as a, a sort of widget to to get what I wanted. And uh and unsurprisingly that turned out to 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 be um, really unproductive. I, I, you know, the writing I did during that period was really poor. Um, you know, when you, when you just try to impress people with your writing, you write very unimpressive prose. So, um, it, it, so that passage, yeah probably comes from, uh, from that period of my life when I thought, you know, I'm going to be a writer. And I was thinking about like, what, what other people would think if I was a successful writer. Um, and then I had about two decades of being a failed writer and, uh, and realized that that passage was entirely wrong. You know, like, uh, 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 for a couple of decades, when I say I'm a writer, people mostly just kind of look in horror and quietly step away.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, it reminds me, too, of, of something that Samuel says a few different times in the book, both about Bethany, um, the the twin sister of his childhood friend whom, with whom he kind of develops this romantic obsession throughout mo- most of his his 20s and early 30s. Um, and mm-hmm. also about his mother, where he says several times that he feels like he's living his life imagining himself as he as he would be seen through their eyes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely something uh, I was thinking about uh, um, when I was writing, uh, you know, several different characters about how they how they are perceived by others and how they're acutely aware of how they're perceived by others. So Samuel, of course, is uh, I mean, he's just he's just the kind of guy who's who's always on the lookout for potential you know threats in the environment uh, and, uh, uh, social threats. I mean, uh, but then you have someone like Ponage, who's very aware that, that he, uh, that he's perceived as a very powerful, very capable, very important person by the other people in his, uh, in his video game guild. Uh, and, uh, and Laura, who's also quite aware of how she's representing herself on, I feel, uh, and, uh, and you have periwinkle who's of course, um, uh, uh, a, a master manipulator of of image and facade. So yeah, I'd, I'd say uh, that 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 idea sort of trickled over into 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 the rest of the book. This idea of uh, of of uh, being being aware of uh, of how you're perceived and also being aware of that when that perception is different from from your actual lived you.
1: I think in some ways that perception always feels different from your actual lived you. And I think I think the book gets at that a little bit, this sense, and maybe most especially with Faye, you know where she feels like no one ever sees her true self, um, uh-huh. and she you know feels this need to be constantly performing the person that uh, she wants other people to see her as, and she maybe has the greatest consciousness of it, but I think yeah. that you know all the characters in the book do that to some extent, but I think that that really gets to kind of a universe, universality of how I don't know if any of us ever feel like we're truly seen as the as the person we see ourselves as.
2: I, I think you're right and, I mean, think about how much even your very close friends know about you compared to how vast you feel on the inside, you know? Um, and think about uh, how uh, how much you don't reveal uh, to, to other people, just kind of those darknesses that just are, are inside that you really don't let out, I mean, that's kind of all part of us. Um, and uh, so, yeah. but. Uh, for sure, we um, there's there's that there's that uh, difference between perception and reality. But then we we also feel it about ourselves, right? Like not it's not only other people who don't see us correctly. Often we don't see ourselves correctly. Uh, uh, I think of um, you know like uh, a character like Ponage, for example. I mean his his big problem is that he sees himself in the future as a radically different guy, as the person he is right now uh and uh and that's that's a psychological phenomenon that when we imagine ourselves in the future we 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 typically think of ourselves as better people than we than we really are you know mm-hmm. um so i'll get a i'll get a gym membership thinking i'm totally going to do this and the, you know i'm going to be a guy who works out at the gym and then you know maybe rarely rarely use it or i'll load up my netflix queue with uh, deep oscar winning movies and then on any given night, uh, you know, watch—I don't know—reality TV, comic book. Uh, uh, yeah, right. Uh, because that's just easier in the moment. Uh, so Ponage's issue is that is that he he doesn't perceive himself correctly. He thinks he's going to be one guy in the future, and then he cannot be that guy. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's uh, that that's also happening all over the place. It's a book about not only like how, how we're perceived by other people, but how our, how we perceive ourselves and how those those things um, are often unaligned. So
1: for you, as a writer, you you started at this place where you were very conscious as, of how you were being seen by others, and mm-hmm. and you felt like that impacted your writing, and maybe, mm-hmm. maybe made it less, maybe, I'm putting words in your mouth, but maybe less, um, maybe more emotionally inauthentic, or less, less emotionally authentic. Um, That's fair. So how do you, how did you get away from that? Was it just yeah, aging?
2: Saw, uh, sort of, yeah, it was aging and a lot of rejection, um, you know, when I was, I was uh you know trying to get an agent in, in New York and I was over something like over 30 uh uh it was it was um I you, you have to sort of reevaluate uh I ended up taking a teaching job in Florida and moving away from New York and uh and for the most part except for you know a story here or there I dropped out of the of the publishing uh publishing world the I, I wasn't querying anybody. I wasn't uh, sending stuff out uh, and I stopped, I really stopped worrying about, about publishing. I was building a, a teaching career. I really liked it uh, and, and so I was focused on that and the, the book became uh, this, this other project that I was working on somewhat in the background. Um, the way I kind of think about it now is I was working on the book the way some people work on a garden. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you, you know, you work on a you don't, you don't work on a garden to try to get famous and you, 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 know, you, you don't think that your garden is a failure if uh, if people don't see it. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, and,
2: and so that became that became uh, my my writing life. Uh, this this secret thing that uh, that I was doing for myself and uh, and my wife, my wife is the only person who knew anything about this book as I was writing it. Uh, and, uh, as it turned out, like that was the thing that the, that the book really needed. I needed to just do something that was really idiosyncratically me. And I needed to do something that brought me genuine joy. Like the writing of the writing I was doing in New York was not fun, was not fun for me. I I had all the, all these like burdens of expectation on it. Uh, but when I started writing more for myself, uh, a prerequisite for writing any scene was that I had to find some kind of enjoyment in it. And so, uh, writing the book became this, this source of joy rather than the source of stress and, and anxiety. Yeah. Uh, and that that made a big difference.
1: But, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by what you say, because I think that doing what you did can be very hard. I mean, maybe it's just me, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's really hard to take the time to invest in something that you feel is not going to yield a return. You know, like if it's mm-hmm. not going to help you earn money or, um, or do something for another person, doing something that's just for yourself. Um, it's something that mm-hmm. I have a really hard time with. And so I wonder, you know, you're, here you are and you're teaching and you're doing your thing, but you're still, you must have been investing like significant amount of time into this writing. That seems like it's something that's kind of like just for you. And did you struggle with that at all? Or were you okay with that? Or were you were like, my joy is enough. Like I, I, I mean, and I, I believe that like you're entitled to your joy. i not trying to critique mm-hmm. it. I think it's great. I just think that, like, I definitely struggle with that.
2: Well, I, I would I would lie. I would be lying if I said that that I didn't care if they were published at all. Uh, obviously, I, I, I wanted it to be successful. But uh, but that wasn't that wasn't the driving force behind it. Uh, and, and, and in part, I thought, I mean, part of the way I, I in my in my head, the way it worked was that it, it brought me it brought me a little bit of everyday joy to to do it. Uh, But also I was teaching, I was teaching writing to university students and, Mm -hmm. and, and part of what you bring to that conversation is your life as a writer. Uh, And so in in part, I thought doing, you know, working on this book, even, even if it never gets published, working on this book is, is, is a responsibility I should take seriously if I'm going to teach other people how to do this, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And so in in some ways I felt like it was part of my job. Um, Oh, I think uh, that
1: helps a lot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah
2: it did it really did it it, it w- when I could tell my students that I had you know a writing life that I had a certain routine and certain habits uh, i didn 't feel like a complete hypocrite um and uh so yeah but 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 mostly it's mostly it was it was really i't know in a, in a very kind of kind of cheesy self therapy kind of way um it was for me you know i I, I feel like I learned a lot writing this novel. Um, I, I feel like I, writing is the thing I use to figure out um, to figure out things that I'm confused about, or things that I'm angry about, or things uh, that I don't know enough about yet. And uh, and so, uh, in some ways, it was it was it was both cathartic and and uh, and educational.
1: You know, I've I've described this book to people as a big mess of a novel that somehow miraculously works. And I kind of, I have also said that it's like you took everything in your pantry and you threw it into a pot and it somehow turned out delicious, which never happens when I do that. Um, So, but I'm really curious about your process. I've read somewhere that you said you didn't have an outline for the book. So how do you write a book like this? I mean, just talk to me a little about the process of it.
2: Yeah, I think I've been, I've been dinged by a few people in the press for, uh, for the everything but the kitchen sink, uh, uh, quality of the book. Honestly, I, I didn't feel like I was I was bringing in everything. I, I felt that I brought in only things that that resonated somatically. Uh, but the, the way the way I did it, and I I don't know if I'd recommend this to other writers, but but uh, the way I did it was just I took a long time and 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 I, I let the let the project be open to to influences. So it took me about 10 years to write the book, and you know over 10 years, if you have maybe two good plot ideas per year you're going to suddenly come up with a really intricate plot you know uh and uh and that's sort of how it happened by by slow accretion uh i i would be i would be uh i, w- I would pursue a line of thought and, and realize that it that it resonated somehow and go ahead and add that to the book and and it just kind of kept growing and growing and growing it almost so- sort of had this magnetic pull to to other to other subjects and when those, those other subjects seemed, seemed attracted to it i would. I would, I would just let it happen. You know, I didn't censor myself too much, which is sort of why the, uh, the, the first draft was a thousand pages long and I had to cut it way back.
1: Yeah. So Uh, I wanted to know, like, what did you leave out?
2: What did I leave out? (laughs) Uh, uh, there are, uh, you know, a lot of places where I was just super self-indulgent, you know, like, uh, there's this, uh, there's a scene early in the book where Samuel is, uh, is, is raiding with his, his guild, his video game guild. And, uh, they're, 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 they're killing a dragon and in the original version of that uh every time i mentioned some other player in the guild i would i would zoom through the computer line and then all of a sudden we would be there in that person's basement or living room and you would get two or three pages on that person's life and why they were playing the video game and then you kind of zoom back so samuel is just one of many people uh playing this game and uh (laughs) and and the the chapter ended up being like 30 or 40 pages long and could not I could not do that, so I, uh, I I pulled back and made it only about Samuel, uh, and not about the rest of the players in the uh, in the uh, in the raid. Um, things like that, just places where I I really overwrote the scene uh, and needed to needed to pull things back.
1: And so you you know you're you're following different lines of story. Would you write you know Ponage's? Am I saying that right, Ponage? Yeah, Ponage. Ponage. Am I like? Would you write his whole storyline, or would you? You know, write one piece of it, and then return to Samuel. Uh,
2: I would write. I would write one. Well, with Ponage, I think I wrote. I wrote uh, two scenes. I think I wrote two scenes with Ponage, and I didn't know where in the book they would go, but I, I, I knew they they needed to they needed to be in the book. He he seemed important to me, uh, and then uh, and then somewhere along the way, I realized that Ponage could be. I figured out a way to make him uh, an important character to make him essential for uh, a crucial decision that samuel has to make uh and, uh and 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 then wrote that scene but um it was sort of halfway you know inspiration i would just kind of uh run amok and uh and write the scene not knowing where it would go in the book and then sometimes it was very much you know uh very utilitarian where i, I need i need a beat to happen here i need a turning point to happen here and so i'll i'll write this scene because i think it'll work
1: I wanted to talk about one particular scene that really spoke to me, even though it's a really small moment. um, Mm -hmm. It's the scene pretty early in the book when Samuel's a small child and Faye, his mom, um, tells him that they're going to take a walk and that he should bring nine toys. Um, And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about, uh, about that scene, maybe recap it for our listeners and then talk about the writing of it.
2: Yeah, it's the first scene in section two where we we jump back to the last month that Samuel uh, uh, has essentially has a mother. She's going to abandon the family without a without a word uh, at the end of this month. Uh, but he doesn't know that yet, of course. So this is the first scene that we get of them. And uh, that's that's a scene where the two of them just are not connecting. Uh, um she, he starts crying because he has a heat rash. There's a heat wave and, and he has a little bit of a heat rash and he's crying about it. And she, she never likes when he cries. He's sort of a he's a, kind of a hair trigger cry baby uh, kid and, uh, and it frustrates her, but that frustration is the thing that makes him cry worse because he's afraid of disappointing his mom, but she doesn't know that that's his fear. And so her attention and frustration to the crying is the thing that amplifies the crying itself. And so there, I just needed a scene where the two of them are, I mean, just captures the way that they are, are not connecting. They're, they're paying careful attention to each other, but they're misreading all of the signs. Uh, and so at some point to distract him from the crying, she asks him to fill a wagon uh, with his nine favorite toys. Um, and it's, it's one of those, I, I, I feel like Faye is a kind of character who who tests him a lot? Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who who wants and who and, you know and her husband as well, who wants them to be certain kinds of people, and so gives them these tests to prove that they are these certain kinds of people, and then extrapolates great meaning when they fail those tests. Uh, and and so he, uh, she asked him to put nine of his favorite toys in the wagon because he has a shoebox under his bed that's filled with his ten favorite toys, and she's curious about what toy she's or he's going to abandon and uh and it's just one of uh you know one of the, one of Faye's strange tests um and again uh they, they 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 don't uh they don't connect uh uh Samuel doesn't really follow the instructions uh according to Faye but 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 he 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 I don't should I give away the ending of that chapter I'm trying to talk <laughs> around it but, um uh i'll just say it uh, uh um he he puts eight eight toys in the wagon because the ninth toy is the wagon itself but she doesn't realize that and so he she thinks that he just uh, messed up and and put eight toys instead of nine and she, like, she gets a little angry about that
1: so much you know like i'm Did like it? tearing up like hearing you like talk about it because i don't know there was something about like him thinking that he passed the test and you know she then snaps at him and says you know you only brought eight and i told you to bring nine and you know, and and there's this moment of his internal, internal inside his head that, but then you know the ninth toy was the wagon itself, and like yeah. this moment of like he he really thinks that he's done it right, and he's still doing it wrong. I just right. found that so incredibly sad, for
3: lack of a better word.
2: That um, was one of that was one of two chapters that uh, when I read it out loud to my wife, she she cried <laughs> when. When she did that, I'm like, okay, this is this is a good one.
1: <laughs> it's like one of the things I really love about this book is that like there's all these big things that happen, but then there are all these like tiny moments that almost matter more.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, with that, with that chapter, I really, I mean, um, I, I really wanted just the very first perception that you got of this relationship. I wanted it to be clear that that while they 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 are immensely meaningful to each other Samuel and Faye are very meaningful to each other they, they cannot seem to connect uh, they uh, they they have this relationship that's just uh, they're just kind of butting uh, butting heads uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, on the, on different tracks if that makes sense and uh, and so I just yeah I needed I needed one scene to really profoundly uh, uh, capture that that feeling and so that's the the wagon thing was the thing I came up with
3: there's
1: another part of the book that is, involves um, child molestation. And I always think that's a really tricky thing to write about because it's, it's too easy to feel kind of like like the cheap, the cheap and easy answer. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, the thing that yeah. explains what's going on with this kid. Of course, he was molested. Did you um, have concerns about that? How did you feel like you could navigate that?
2: Well, um, yeah, it is. The, those were really, really difficult pieces to write uh i think that what what i was interested in was uh uh was the phenomenon of how how a lot of people a lot of a lot of uh uh, people who who experience this as a as a child grow up to feel like it was their fault that they brought it on themselves uh that maybe they enjoyed it while it was happening Uh, whether or not that's that's true that that's that's their perception later in life Mm -hmm. uh and that's 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 something that I don't really see that often when I, when I, when I read about this in, in literature is that quality that, 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 that can produce this intense self-loathing. Uh, and, and so that, that I thought was, uh, was a, a way to approach it, uh, in a, in, in a way that wasn't, wasn't something that was, that was cheap. Uh, wasn't something that was, uh, uh, cliche, that was respectful of the, uh, of the subject matter. Um, and, and hopefully, Shed some some light on it a little bit, uh, and and so 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 yeah, Bishop kind of came out of out of that 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 thinking that you know what what if you know he's acting out because he's jealous? Uh, what if he, he uh, um, you know he's he's sad that the headmaster has stopped uh, has moved on to another boy and he's not and he's not uh, being paid attention to anymore? And mm-hmm. what if that very feeling is the thing that causes him the most horror later in life?
1: We are almost at, um, at the end here, and I always like to finish up by talking about endings. And one thing that I've talked about with a lot of authors is their choice whether or not to write an epilogue. This book doesn't exactly have an epilogue, but you get to page 610, and there's still a lot of loose ends. And then in 10 pages, most of them are maybe not wrapped up, but they are addressed. So mm-hmm. I imagine this was a very hard book to end when you have so many things going on. Can you talk about writing the ending?
2: Sure. Uh, the the I had the I had the uh, the the last line uh, of the book. Uh, All debts must be repaid. I I I came up with that line on a bike ride in Chicago. Uh, maybe two summers before I actually finished the book. Uh, I, I think I was I was thinking a lot about. Uh, uh, at that time, it was, oh gosh, probably 2011, maybe. Uh, and I was thinking a lot about the financial recovery and uh, uh, debt, obli- like sovereign debt obligations in, in Greece and Iceland. And, you know, we're, 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 we're wrecking the, the, the world economy. And, and I thought it was a nice way to, to talk about what was happening both in kind of financial markets and also with his character. So I knew my last line and I just had to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with the ending, I wanted to come back to most of the characters and talk about what they were doing because I, I felt like I owed it to the reader. You know, I'm, I'm asking the reader to, to invest a lot of time reading a 600-page novel, so I felt like it was my responsibility uh, to, to make it a satisfying ending. I didn't want to wrap everything up in a neat bow, but I wanted it to feel powerful, and I wanted it to feel poignant, and I wanted, I wanted the reader to have this, a sense of closure and finality, I just thought that the reader deserved it after going through so many pages with me
1: and did you did you have a sense of you know where all the characters were earlier on that you just needed to kind of write out or did any of them surprise uh, you and where they kind of yeah ended up? It,
2: it, it did because uh, uh, uh I think uh, faye and uh and Samuel had different different uh endings than I thought they would uh in in one of my first drafts you know I had that last line, but I thought it was going to be Samuel and Faye together you know uh uh, maybe um, you know over coffee at her apartment as they 're talking and becoming becoming friends, uh, and that really didn 't work I, and, and it didn 't feel quite right uh, uh, i didn 't think it should be quite that easy and so when i when I decided that when I really thought about it and, and scratched that ending and and thought about what what Faye might do to start paying off her debts, uh, it suddenly occurred to me that that her dad might be the place that she went to first uh, and uh, And so, so yeah, so that's when, 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 when I came up with a, you know, them still splitting, but they're, they're talking on the phone and you, and you hopefully realize that there's going to be uh, a warming of their relationship and, and, uh, and they're going to, they're going to probably connect someday, but that's going to, they're going to have to achieve that through some work.
1: Yeah. I loved that. And I love too, you know, that there wasn't a sort of happily ever after ending with Bethany and Samuel as well. Mm -hmm. It's that same sense of like something is burgeoning maybe, but it's going to have to have some time to see where it's going to to go and you kind of let it it be.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Well, uh, it has been everything that I could have hoped for talking to you after all these months of waiting (laughs) for it. Um, I I really appreciate your coming on. Thank you so
2: much. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
1: I'm Sid Oppenheimer and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Annie Toms and Jessica Sager. Annie is a high school English teacher, and this year one of the books she'll be teaching is Vaklev and Lena by Haley Tanner, which she first discussed here on Book Talk with me and Jessica. Jessica is the executive director of the New Haven-based nonprofit All Our Kin, and she had to cancel her last appearance on Book Talk so she could speak at the White House, the only acceptable excuse. Annie and Jessica, it's great to be together again.
4: Great to be back. So happy to be here.
1: So I couldn't decide whether I wanted to start by talking about ghosts, or by talking about Choose Your Own Adventures. So I decided I would let you guys have a Choose Your Own Adventure, and you could decide. Where do you want to begin?
3: Sure. I'm very interested in the Choose Your Own Adventure aspects of this book. Um, and thinking about uh, the way that um, that Nathan Hill puts out Choose Your Own Adventure as a possible way to read the book And as a a way that Samuel sort of tries to see um, his own life Uh, in a kind of a strange way. And, you know, he writes this Choose Your Own Adventure book when he's a kid. And that's one of the things that first makes him want to be an author. But then when there's this whole big section in the middle where it's set up, written in second person as a Choose Your Own Adventure book... There are no actual places to make choices. And then he even says on page 318, this might not seem like a choose-your-own-adventure story yet because you haven't made a choice. So when I was thinking about that, I was thinking what choose-your-own-adventure stories have in common with the way that Samuel thinks about his own life. And one of the things that he mentions and that I remember doing with choose-your-own-adventure books as a kid is that you can stick your finger in at the moment of choice, and then return to the book at that place and try again.
1: And in fact, he says that on page 604. He says, when Samuel was a child reading a choose-your-own-adventure novel, he'd keep a bookmark at the spot of a very hard decision so that if the story turned out poorly, he could go back and try again.
3: Exactly. So there's the idea of choice among a limited number of choices, but there's also the possibility of having a do-over. That The possibility that you can go through it first, and then knowing more, you can try again. Heading for a different result. That made me think, and, and I'd be curious to think what, what you two think about this about those moments when Samuel tries that do over, tries that doing things again. And it also made me think about a connection to the world of Elfquest um, and how Ponage talks about how the battles can be exciting but then they become repetitive. So you have the, the, the in the world of ElfQuest, you have the ability to choose your own individual adventure, but you also have the ability to repeat and get better and get better.
4: So I love that. Um, I, in the first part of the book, really struggled with Samuel's passivity. And when I came to that line about you haven't made a choice, the book kind of began to coalesce for me in a different way. And I started thinking about all the places where Samuel makes a choice, especially with his mother, that ends up being the wrong choice and how that structures his whole thinking about his life. And there was this moment early on that I found so moving where he chooses what he wants to eat and he desperately wants the chicken nuggets, but he's afraid to say it, and he chooses the burger instead. And it's one of the few moments where he and his mother, in this funny way, connect, because she gives him a do-over. And yet, at the end of the day, they are both so separate and so isolated that even though he's able to choose again, he doesn't get what he wants. Sid, you look like you want to jump in on that.
1: Well, I think that the passage that... Um, that we talked about it during the author interview um, about the nine toys also speaks to that, you know, he's given a choice, pick the nine toys that you want, your nine favorite toys and bring them. And he thinks that he's done the right thing. And then he has still somehow failed his mother. And so I agree, like, it's, it's, it's this sense that every time he chooses, it leads to dire consequences, the most dire of which is that his mother leaves him. And so I think he is petrified into not making choices at all because every time he's made a choice, it leads to failure.
3: I also wonder whether it it, whether the choice that he's making with those toys, you know, you and and Nathan Hill were talking about how she sets up, Faye sets up choices that will make you fail. (laughs) Right? So like there's no real way for him to choose right or or well, or, you know, sets up choices where, where then he will fail. Um, and, and I wondered throughout this whole book, is choice possible for anybody in this book? You know, we get at the very end this giant revelation that Periwinkle, with Faye's help, has been shaping Samuel's entire life, that these choices that he thought he was making, even about becoming a writer, were not actually his choices that she's been, you know, Faye and, and Periwinkle together have been, Um, making those choices for him.
1: Right. So just to give a little context for that, Um, Samuel believes that when he was in college or graduate school, he was basically plucked from obscurity because his professor passed his story along to this literary agent who was looking for great young upcoming talent. His story was published in the New Yorker and he got this great book contract out of it. And he believes that he made those things happen with his talent. And at the end we learn, in fact, That Guy Periwinkle, who was uh, a friend of his mother's back in Chicago in the 1960s, um, was really uh, that agent and that this was kind of a a plan between Faye and Guy to do that for Samuel. Kind of a gift to him, but it certainly takes agency away from him.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that Faye does not have a tremendous amount of agency in her own life as well, but the major choices that she makes in her own life about deciding to leave her hometown and move to chicago and then deciding to go back um that those are are not really her choices that they're shaped by the the circumstances around her in a way that that she doesn't really have a lot of agency either
4: and and yet to bring it back to samuel for a moment i mean i almost wonder if samuel and faye have this misconception about the limits of their own agency I mean, the choose-your-own-adventure actually all moves to a point where Samuel has maybe the single most important choice in his life, which is after he reads Bishop's letter, does he essentially do what his mother did and walk away and disappear, or does he stay? And he walks away. He makes the same choice. And that's absolutely his decision to make. And I think yet again, he makes the wrong choice. But I feel like one of the great joys of the novel's conclusion for me is that we finally see Faye and Samuel uh, taking ownership and recognizing that while there are limitations and many forces they can't control, there are ways in which they actually can choose their own adventure and shape their own destiny.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think at the end, you know, the, the sense I get at the end is that, he understands there's no way to do it over. And he accepts that. But he, what he comes to believe is that there is a way to move forward. And that's really an important distinction, but it still gives him back a kind of agency over his life that he had essentially forfeited.
3: And I think that part of that comes, th- thinking about sort of like Large decisions in your life, and then sort of much smaller moments and moments of connection. It was interesting, Jessica, you you made me think like most of the main decisions that people make are about leaving or running away. You know, that Faye's major decision is to leave her child and her husband. We find out that Faye's father left. His the woman who was carrying his child, and then Samuel makes that choice to leave Bethany in in the moment that he could have stayed with her because he felt because Bishop's letter asks him basically to leave Bethany. Um, so there's all of this all of this leaving. Um, but then I, I do agree that that by the end the the sen- there's this great sense of hope, but the hope doesn't come through grand gestures. It comes through these little tiny moments of individual connection. And so it's like the rules of the, of the game have changed by the end. Or, you know, what, what Samuel realizes at the end is that it's really about these very small moments of human connection, not about grand gestures or huge
4: plot points. So this is actually taking me back to ghosts where we started.
1: I knew we'd get there. <laughs>
4: Because I do feel that this theme in the book about running away and coming back uh, is so tied up in this idea of ghosts. And on page 152, there's this wonderful ghost. It's a ghost that looks like a rock. And Samuel says, how do you know it's a ghost? Or how can you tell it's a ghost? And his mother says, you can't unless you take it out to sea. If anyone takes it onto the ocean, It'll get heavier the further you travel from shore. And if you're really far, the ghost will get so heavy, it'll sink your ship. They called it a drowning stone. And um, that really echoes with me with a message we hear later in the book, which is the only way to get rid of a ghost is to take it home.
1: Mm-hmm. I-, I thought that drowning stone was important for all of the characters. And as I thought about it, I felt like all of them had a drowning stone from the most major characters like Samuel, whose drowning stone, I think is his mother and her abandonment of him. And he carries that with him and it, it you know, it impacts everything he does. As we said, like it's, it's, it's his forfeiting of his own agency because of his fear that doing the wrong thing will leave, lead people to leave him. Um, but then even even some of the smaller characters, like the judge, Charlie Brown, who was a police officer back in the 1960s and encountered Faye in Chicago at that time and has since become this judge and is the judge assigned to her case when she is arrested for assaulting Governor Packer. You know, for him, his drowning stone is Alice. And that was his uh, his mistress in, in the 1960s, Faye's college friend, um, and she leaves him and And he is never able to really get past that. And that continues to kind of deform him in ways that we see throughout his life. Um, and I think that, you know, every character has that drowning stone, but I hadn't thought about that idea of like the only way to get rid of it is to go home because it's the further you get from home that it will cause you to drown. And if you go back, maybe it just turns back into a stone
3: that that connects very much to, to the idea of empathy, um, and to the idea of, of mar that Sebastian, um, talks to Faye about, uh, you know, that, I feel, I feel like the, the whole ghost spirit theme for me really also very deeply connected to, um, to this, this mar, this empathy. Um, Sebastian says to Faye on page 411, Um, That real empathy is the actual corporeal feeling of someone else's emotions, so that it's experienced not only in the brain, but also in the body, the body vibrating like a tuning fork to the sadness and suffering of another. As in, for instance, you cry at the funerals of people you never even knew. You feel actual physical hunger when you see a starving child. You get vertigo when you watch an acrobat. If we follow this to its conclusion, then empathy becomes like a haunting, a condition that is impossible since we all have separate egos. We've attained individuation. We can never really be another person. And that's the great empathy problem, that we can approach it, but cannot realize it. And so in that way, I, I feel like that's sort of the human version of the ghost haunting. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of think about how that works with the drowning stone idea um, that that feeling so strongly for and with somebody else can pull you down. But then he goes on to say that the idea of mar, that that um, to see someone's mar means recognizing someone else's desire without asking, without being told, and acting on it. That last part is essential. The seeing is not complete until one does something about it. It's this active sense of empathy. And so maybe it's, it's you bring the drowning stone home and then... Like, you listen to it and you take care of it, you know, in the way that Faye winds up taking care of her father at the end and that Samuel winds up connecting and taking care in some way of both Faye and of Bethany and and really seeing them and feeling them as real rather than as this haunting figure, these haunting figures that they've been for him his whole life.
1: There's a line where um, Samuel says... Uh, sometimes we're so wrapped up in our own story that we don't see how we're supporting characters in someone else's. And I think that also gets to this idea of the ability to see people as the main characters in their own stories rather than just as supporting characters in our own. And so towards the end, Samuel is able to see Bethany as her own person in her own right who has her own story, not just a story that connects to his story. And he's able to see Faye in that same way, um, and I actually think that that is one of the reasons why having Laura, uh, the student who tries to get Samuel fired from this college, and also Ponage, the um, the, the 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 online role playing um, game master with whom Samuel connects during their games of of, of Elfscape, I think that's why, for me, having those characters in the book worked, uh, because. It's this sense that they are supporting characters in Samuel's story, but they are also given their own stories.
4: Yeah, I mean, that actually really makes me think about something that Nathan Hill said in his interview with you, which is that he originally wrote this chapter where you get a glimpse into the life of every single one of the ElfQuest players, and that he ended up taking it out. And I actually thought, that's so perfect, that so speaks to the way this book works, where you see a character like Ponage who seems so strange and almost laughable and suddenly you're in his world and he makes sense to you in a different way. So that sense of sudden insight and empathy uh, I I think is really fundamental to this book.
1: But I wonder if you all think that this this discourse about empathy should be impacted by the fact that it comes from Sebastian, which is, um, Guy Periwinkle's alternate name. He goes by this, uh, alternate name when he is in Chicago and kind of working undercover for the police. Uh, and, uh, you know, we find out later and then as Guy Periwinkle, he is kind of a sleazy, um, not very principled, uh, individual. So does that, should that impact our reading of those words?
3: Well, I think that, that those words sort of Samuel translates that idea without necessarily, well, I don't know if he's coming directly from Sebastian. I don't know if this is a story that he's gotten from Faye. We get the, we get the revelation at the very end that the book that we have been reading might be the book that Samuel wrote about his own mother. You know, he says to, to Guy Periwinkle, yes, I'm writing this story and don't worry, I'll give you another name. Like I'll give you a silly, you know, a funny name. Um, and, and so we get this sense that, that this is Samuel's book that is, and I, and I do think in that way it is Samuel who is making the case for empathy and not just Sebastian who is making the case for empathy. But I totally agree. said that I, I think that, um, Sebastian is such a hugely problematic character. You know, it's, it's like, he can see this, this, um, the importance of empathy, and he can really move people, but he moves people in this utterly manipulative way where he increases the heat in situations, and he causes these fires, and he makes this giant violent protest in Chicago in 1968, and then he, it's out of his control, and even when he wants to kind of pull it back, he can't. And it's it was interesting to me that, that then, when he moves forward into the future, that he's not in charge of protests anymore, but he's in charge of sort of lifting things up and, and making things bigger and crazier on social media and in a publicity sort of way. Um, so he's doing the same kind of lighting fires and increasing tension and manipulating people to, and it doesn't seem to matter to him what end he's doing it to. So, so I, I do think that there's a problem with him being the person talking about empathy in the first place. But I also think that that is the takeaway that I get from the book that, that Hill is getting to and that I think that Samuel gets to at the end, that really that individual empathy is the important thing.
1: There's a line towards the very end uh, that I actually um, quoted on Facebook, just put on because I loved this passage so much, um, which I think uh, gets to it. Ponage has earlier told um, told Samuel that there's four kinds of people, uh, that you encounter in the game of, of Elfscape. Um, and it's, uh, and, and that this applies to the people in your life as well. They're either enemies, obstacles, puzzles, or traps. And then on page 616, it says, um, for both Samuel and Faye Circus summer, 2011, people were definitely enemies. Mostly what they wanted out of life was to be left alone, but you cannot endure this world alone. And the more Samuel's written his book, the more he's realized how wrong he was. Because if you see people as enemies or obstacles or traps, you will be at constant war with them and with yourself. Whereas if you choose to see people as puzzles, and if you see yourself as a puzzle, then you will be constantly delighted. Because eventually, if you dig deep enough into anybody, if you really look under the hood of someone's life, you will find something familiar. This is more work, of course, than believing they are enemies. Understanding is always harder than plain hatred. But it expands your life. You will feel less alone.
3: Yeah. I wrote that quote down too. And and I feel like that's really where we come to in this book. That's really where we end in this book. And, and I was thinking about that also in terms of um, uh, the the larger movements that happen in the book. I feel like part of the other message of this book is, is not that, you know, that the expression, like um, the personal is political. Mm-hmm. I feel like this book is sort of making the argument that the political is all actually personal, that even the large movements that we see in this book are all growing from all coming from personal individual love and longing and anger and disappointment um that you know that for Faye her involvement in the protest in 1968 is just that she's really attracted to Sebastian and she wants to kind of be with him. And her involvement in the, um, uh, you know, when she, she starts out as the Packer attacker, she throws these rocks. We think she throws rocks at this, this governor Packer, who's this, uh, this really um, right wing political candidate. And then it turns out actually at the end that she was trying to throw rocks at Periwinkle. You know, um, Sebastian Periwinkle, that that it was this incredibly personal thing that then is read by the world as a a larger political action. And as you mentioned, you know, for Charlie Brown, the whole protest movement is actually about him being left by Alice being romantically rejected Um, when Samuel and Bethany go to the protest in 2004 against the war, um, Samuel is not there for a larger political reason. He's there for Bethany. And Bethany is not really there for a logical political reason. She's there because she lost her brother, Bishop. Um, all of these larger movements are really coming from these moments of individual human connection. And, and some of the, a lot of those feelings are, are really um, hurting and, you know, it's it's people sort of trying to figure out what to do with their personal unhappiness and pain or with their longing.
4: So, you know, especially when you mention the protests, that makes me think about this concept in the book that comes up a few times of the invisible injury, right? So Mm -hmm. in the protest, you know, Charlie Brown suffers this wound from a sliver of glass that will, in fact, uh, you know, wreck his body and shape the rest of his life, but no one can see it. And it is, in fact, paralleled by the wound that Chucky, the soldier, suffers, where it looks as though he is unharmed, and in fact, he is bleeding to death. So this is Bishop's friend who, uh, who is killed when they are fighting together. And this idea of what you can't see that is lodged deep inside you in your most tender and vulnerable places— that are not apparent to those around you, and yet will change the course of your whole life.
3: Mm-hmm. And, and Bishop being the vic- victim of sexual abuse is an injury that is not physically visible on him, but shapes everything about his life and and ultimately his death.
1: And when you had mentioned that, Jessica, I was thinking about Charlie Brown and Chucky, and it struck me that really they share the same name, that, you know, uh, Charlie is a, is a nickname for Charles, as is Chuck or Chucky. And that these two characters, who seem so different—the um, one, the embittered old judge, who's kind of taking out his uh, his anger and his, his bitterness on Faye, and the other, this young soldier who, um, you know, suffers from motion sickness and uh, and and was nervous about talking to a pretty girl in his high school—I think what the book does is, you know, it it is it is constantly about like getting under the hood of people and seeing the things they have in common.
4: So this comes back to me to Frank and Faye and Samuel and the ways in which they all have similar injuries and yet they can't see each other's injuries. You know, I think about this idea of the ghost in the basement and, Mm -hmm. you know, Samuel doesn't want to go downstairs, but his mother says to him, she, she has had this very traumatic experience with what she perceived as a ghost in the basement. And she says, he won't hurt you. He can only hurt me, not understanding that the way in which she carries her ghosts is the way in which her son will carry his ghosts and is also the same in which her father is haunted by ghosts of his own. And a lot of us, the circle of the book is the children each recognizing themselves in the journeys of their parents where their parents have been unwilling or unable to see those commonalities.
1: Well, I think that seems like a good moment to end on, although I know we have more pages of notes we could talk about. Um, Annie and Jessica, it's been wonderful having you guys back. Uh, I hope you'll come back again soon.
3: Such a pleasure, Sid. Thank you.
1: I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Kyle Litcher reviews the graphic novel Level Up by Jean Leung Yang.
0: I'm Kyle Litcher, teen librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here to recommend and review the young adult graphic novel, Level Up, by author Jean Luan Yang. Ever thought your parents were a bit too controlling? Overbearing? Imagine if your entire life was mapped out for you by your parents before you were even out of middle school. This is the story of Dennis, who wanted one path in life for himself while his parents forced him down another. This story is about what happens when you decide to follow someone else's path instead of your own. It's a story where the main character is about as human as they come. Flawed. Genuine. Average. This is a story that will hit home with anyone whose parents think that they know what's best for their adult child, even when they don't. However, this is also a story for those who think they know everything about their parents, even when they don't really don't. A story for parents who do the best to make sure their children do not make the same mistakes they did. Finally, this is a story about love in all its forms, romantic, familial, platonic, and unrequited. For more teen books and program, come visit the library's Teen Center at the Ives Main Library at 133 Elm Street. You can find more information on our website at www.nhfpl.org. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. As a reminder, all books and manga discussed on Book Talk can always be found at the New Haven Free Public Library.
1: On our next show, airing October fifth, we'll be talking about the novel *The Wongs vs. the World*. First, with the author Jade Chang, and then with my guests, brother and sister pair Brian and Jennifer Ang, and my own sister, a New York City public school librarian, will be making a special appearance to offer her middle grade pick make sure you tune in for this very special sibling episode. As ever, you can share your thoughts about this episode or any other on Facebook or Twitter, and you can listen to old episodes or hear what's coming up next on our website, booktalkradio.net. Until next time, happy reading.